I can see now why John is ripped because he has to pick this thing up every week. So, all right. So for those who do not know me, my name is Tom Sylvia, the new associate pastor here at East Shore Baptist Church. I've been here a little over the month, and for this past month, we have been showered with kindness from all directions. And since I have this platform, I'm going to go ahead and say thank you so much to every one of you for just helping my family and I feel welcomed and loved and part of this family. And with that, if you are new here this morning and you're looking for a church family to call home, then I want to I highly encourage you to fill out that yellow card so we can get to know you and to have that conversation because this church will treat you as part of their family if you will allow them. We have been through, we are going through the book of Hebrews. Pastor John has taken us through this whole book to show us how Jesus is better. Better than anything and everything. If you think of something that's good, Jesus is better. He is the best and greatest possible being to exist. And so keeping with Pastor John's titles today, we're going to see that Jesus is a better sacrifice. He is better than your sacrifice and my sacrifice. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. That's Hebrews chapter 9, 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, we've got you covered. There's a Bible somewhere in the chair behind you. Please feel free to use it, keep it, write in it. It's yours. And before I go any further, let me pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord. For this opportunity, Lord, just to read your word and to teach your word. And Lord, we come before you and ask for just an abundant amount of grace for all of us as we listen to your word this morning. Grace to change our hearts. Grace to repent of our sins. Grace to worship you more. Lord, remind us of the beauty of your gospel. Father, we are yours. Use us. Use me this morning. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. So, how many of us have ever tried to barter with God? in a way, make that deal with God. Perhaps there's some sin you want to overcome, some temptation, or maybe there's just a new status that you want to achieve. And so you begin to, to talk with them, make the deals. It's because something like this, all right, Lord, I really need help overcoming this. So I'm going to commit to doing this. And if I do this, Lord, I need you to do this in return. Or maybe it's, okay, I really want said image. So I will commit, Lord, to doing this for your name. Or I want, I want, to, be, I want to know you more. I want to feel, be closer to you, Lord. You feel so distant from me. So I need to change who I am. Then you start doing different things in order to work your way to God, expecting that what you're doing, God will respond the way you want him to respond. This is that bartering I'm speaking of. 
we start out this barter with such an excitement, such anticipation. We start out thinking, oh, I'm going to change. And then you're already expecting God to fulfill your end of his bargain. You start out thinking, this is going to be wonderful. But yet, as you begin to hold up your end, nothing changes. And then the thought of excitement switches to disappointment, to discouragement, to sadness. The thoughts go from, okay, Lord, I did this for you, and I needed you to do this for me. Nothing happened. And now, Lord, are you punishing me? Are you really there, Lord? What have I done wrong that you're not responding? Is, are, is my self-sacrifice not enough? What must I do? How can I work harder? This is usually what the bartering system with God looks like. And brothers and sisters, it is my prayer today that we are all freed of this kind of thinking. It is my prayer today that this thought and these actions are gone. Because what we will see today in our chapter of Hebrews is that God has already set up a better bargain and a better sacrifice. One in which he did everything and all we need to do is embrace and submit. And that is the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. So, let us look at this transaction that took place on the cross. Let us look at what was paid and how it was paid. So in the words of John the Baptist, if you have your Bibles, the Hebrews 9, 1 through 14, I invite you to behold the Lamb of God. In keeping with the tradition, I would ask you to stand as we read these 14 verses. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But 
when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. It was a mouthful. You can be seated. Thank you. Before we really flesh out what this passage is telling us, we got to look at the full structure of the argument. And what he is using here is a lesser to greater argument. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is a lesser to greater argument. Hence, John's titles, Jesus is better. What is Jesus better than? Well, he's been a better Moses. He's better than the angels. He's been better Melchizedek. So let me give us a modern analogy. I gave this to Pastor John, and he was speechless because he could not argue against it. Here it is. The Philadelphia Eagles are a good football team. <laughs> they, have, they have won Super Bowl victory. Now, this being the objective measure of how good a football team, how much better is the Pittsburgh Steelers, who have won six Super Bowls? <laughs> Remember... I gave this to Pastor John. He said, I submit. <laughs> okay, I'm being, tri I'm being trivial, but you understand my point. I'm using the lesser to speak to what is greater. And in this case, it happened to be the Steelers. Now, in our text, verses 1 through 10 serve as the lesser. And verses 11 through 14 serve as the greater, with the whole point of the argument focusing on verse 14, which is, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? This is huge. Now that we kind of understand the structure and where we've got to go, let's see how we get there, which will bring us to our first point. Our first point that our author wants us to know is that Jesus is the better tabernacle. Jesus is the better tabernacle. Tom, what is the tabernacle? Well, Pastor John did a great job summarizing what the tabernacle is last week. If you haven't heard the sermon, then please go online and listen to it. It's phenomenal. But to summarize some of his points, let's just look at verse 2 in your text, and it'll say the tabernacle is simply this, a tent, a place of holiness. And you could already be thinking, a tabernacle, such a wonderful design, is just a tent. That's it. It is just a tent. You want to see a replica, then go to Lancaster. The Mennonites have built one, and it's an impressive one. But why is the tabernacle important? 
We know what it is, but why is it important? Well, to do that, to know that, we must look at Exodus. We must look at Exodus. And the first appearance of the word tabernacle occurs in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. It's also where Mo, or God begins to give Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Let me read it. Starting in verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of their tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Did you hear that phrase? I may dwell in their midst. God repeats this phrase yet again at the very end of the instructions. He starts with the instructions with, I may dwell. And now at the end of giving the instructions, he says it again in Exodus chapter 29, five, four chapters later, verse 45. Let me read it. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Bookends. The purpose of the tabernacle is for God to dwell with his people. It is for God to live among the people who live in tents, to live in a tent with them. Gerhardus Voss, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century says, the dwelling with his people is to satisfy God's desire to have a mutual identification of lot between himself and them. The tabernacle. It's designed for the world to know who he is and who his people are. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God that is a relational God. God that has always been in relationship since eternity past in relationship before you and I were created. But we have served a God that is relational since existence with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, living for all eternity in perfect harmony, enjoying one another. And then whenever He created us, He created us with a glorious purpose to have a relationship with Him. To think God does not want to have a relationship, to think God is not a relational God, is to think of a different God. Now, let us continue to move here. For our purposes this morning, I want us to bring a little bit more context into this chapter, and we have to go back to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. Our author brings out this verse from the Old Testament. It's, he says in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Why is this important? We're in chapter 9. Context is king. This phrase is important because God has come to dwell with us. And if God has come to dwell with us, and we are to approach him, then we must approach him on his terms. You might be thinking, then why does God make it so difficult? Well, I'll go ahead and tell you, the fact that we can't approach him at all is a massive act of grace. It is a massive act of grace. 
If we were just to take any step towards him without him taking the first step towards us, we would die in our tracks. We are sinners coming before a holy God. We cannot approach God unless it is on his terms. And he is true to this. He is true to this. This phrase, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Well, what exactly does this look like? Well, if you were to survey Exodus 25 through 29, which is where you get the instructions to the tabernacle, then you'll see this phrase appear five times. And surrounded by these, this, this phrase, you'll see at least, to my count, 233 specific commands on how the tabernacle is to be built. 233. Now that is far more extensive than any baby crib you have ever put together. And if you mess up with the baby crib, then you just start over. If you mess up with the tabernacle, then you lose out on the very presence of God. You might think, this is so many parts. How can we go through them all? Well, the author of Hebrews agrees. He already references this in verse 5. He says, we cannot talk about these things as of yet. There are so many details to this tabernacle. We don't have time. But our author mentions a couple of things. He mentions the two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place, and the furniture contained in these rooms. And why does he mention these? He mentions them to show their specific function and purpose. And what is their function and purpose? Well, verses 9 and 13 tell us. Let me read them. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. What does that mean, Tom? Why read those verses? Well, it tells us the whole point of the tabernacle and the sacrifices served one point, and that was to cleanse the external, to cleanse the flesh. All the blood of the goats and the rams, the pigeons, all the animals, all that they could ever do was clean the flesh. The next time you want to try and barter with God to set up terms, remind yourself of the tabernacle of this chapter and remember all that the Israelites had to do just to have a cleaned body. 233 commands. And yet still then, God could not dwell with them. He could not do so. Why? Their, their flesh might have been cleaned, but their heart was still poisoned with sin, and it needs a more potent remedy. Now, just to be fair, the earthly tabernacle was able to cleanse the flesh. The earthly tabernacle was allowed to have part of God's presence to dwell. So God's presence could only barely dwell, but it couldn't, God's presence couldn't stay. And this was still good. These sacrifices could do this. But how much better is Christ, who the tabernacle pointed to? 
If this earthly tabernacle was designed after the heavenly things for God to dwell with his people so that the people could worship God by offering sacrifices, how much more will Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, unite the people to him for all eternity? John 1, verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory and glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt in this verse is actually a made up word by John, the author. He took a noun and turned it into, the, into a verb. It'd be equivalent of me taking a pin and throwing a pin at you and saying, you got pinned. So what did John do here? The word is tabernacle. And what he is saying here is Jesus tabernacled among us. He is fulfilling the purpose of the tabernacle. He is God with us. Jesus was sent on a mission. His mission is the purpose of which the tabernacle only wished it could do. Let me read verses 11 and 12 in our text. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goat, of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus did not go through an earthly tabernacle because that tabernacle couldn't hold him. It couldn't fulfill his purpose. Instead, Jesus went straight through the heavenly throne itself. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, the heavenly throne. We can read a fuller description of what this throne room looks like in Revelation chapter 4. Why could Jesus go through the heavenly tabernacle? Because he spent all eternity sitting in there, in the throne, on the throne room, eternally dwelling with the Father and the Holy Spirit, eternal communion. When you have fellowship with the triune God, you do not need the man-made tent. No bulls, no pigeons, no, no goats, no extra priests, just His blood. This brings us to our second point, that Jesus is the better sacrifice. Jesus is the better sacrifice. The tabernacle, it was designed to receive and sacrifice animals for sins. The priest would sacrifice and then the aroma would go up to God. And there was always a distance. Even in the system, there's always a distance. Always between, something between God and man. Whether there was a curtain, whether there was a room, whether there was an outer court, there was always a distance this has always been the case since Adam and Eve fell. What happens when they took the fruit? God came. What did he do? He called. It's implying distance. No longer are they talking to one another face to face, but there is distance. This is not so with our Lord. He already went straight to the throne room. But 
How did he get there? What sacrifice was offered? And that is himself. His blood. Let me read 12 and 14, 12, verses 12 through 14 again. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ. Who prepared the sacrifice? Who offered up the sacrifice? Once again, there's no priest, no mediator. Christ. Christ offered Himself willingly. The joy set before Him offered Himself. John Owen, the great Puritan. This was the greatest expression of the inexpressible love of Christ. He offered Himself. He is the priest and the sacrifice. I know of no greater mystery than to know that our God bled. What can man do? We can come before God and we can say, Behold the blood of bulls and goats for the covering of our external flesh. What can God do? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Bulls and goats die. If animals weren't offered as a sacrifice and they were just let alone to graze amongst their pastures, they will die. Just of old age, it's going to happen to these bulls and goats. What about the Lamb of God? Well, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the living God, the one who gives life, the one whom the grave cannot contain, an eternally living sacrifice, knows no death. Death serves him. Bulls and goats, what can their blood do? Purify our flesh? Only for us to need yet another bull and goat for the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and on and on it goes. There's no bulls and goats, we'll need pigeons. Because our hearts are plagued with sin. There is not enough animals on this planet to cover our sins. Like any fungus or disease, it lives to spread and contaminate everything. What goes on on the inside will manifest on the outside. And sin will reveal itself. But what about the blood of the Lamb? Brothers and sisters, it purifies not only our flesh, absolutely, 
but it doesn't stay there. How much more so does it purify our hearts? Our hearts. No more, no more repeating. No more again and again and again. Once and done. It is finished. There is no stain of sin in our hearts that the blood of Christ cannot wash. The Puritan William Price, we drown our sins in the Red Sea of Christ's blood. This is the Gospel. Have you told yourselves the Gospel lately? Were you looking for an application from this sermon? Here's application point number one. Tell yourself the Gospel. Tell yourself the Gospel again and again and again until your heart is moved to worship. The Gospel is good news and it, we are never to grow tired of it. Every day we need the Gospel. Again and again and again. We cannot exhaust this story. It is our salvation. The first tabernacle is designed just to show us how bad our sin is. The many sacrifices are designed to show us how bad our sin is. Our sin is so great. Your sin, my sin, is so great that it demanded the Son of God, the Almighty, the great I Am, to step off the heavenly throne, to come down to take on flesh, to be tempted, to be tried, and to die, to bleed. It demanded this to be remedied. Our sin demanded Christ go to a cross. And it is only through His blood that we can be redeemed. And it was on that cross that the Father poured out His wrath that is destined for yours and my sin. That wrath He poured out on His Son. Smitten by God and afflicted, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That wrath was coming for you and me, but the blood. By His wounds, we are healed. By His blood, we are healed. The Gospel. Have you told yourselves the Gospel lately? Application point number two. Tell yourself the Gospel. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? This leads us to our final point. We know that Jesus is the better tabernacle. We know that Jesus is the better sacrifice. Now we need to exalt Christ and see that Jesus is the better Lord. Let me read verse 14 again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who, who through the eternal Spirit offer Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God?
as we stated at the beginning, the author of Hebrews is using a lesser to greater argument. And this is the pinnacle. The chief point of his whole argument is in this verse, that our conscience is pure from dead works to serve a living God. What is this pure conscience? Well, it's simple. It is very simple. It is a renewed heart in Christ. We can go before a holy father whenever we wish. You know, I got this example from Pastor Tim Keller. And it, he's, he's, he gave the story like this. In ancient times, the throne room is where the king made his decrees. He ran his business. It's where he ruled, was on that throne. And not just anybody could walk into that throne room. If anybody was to waltz in there unannounced, they were risking their lives. They could die at that very moment by the king's command. They walked in there unannounced, and the king held up his scepter. They were able to come and live. If he didn't, they died. This is in the story of Esther. Esther needed to save the Jews because all the Jews were going to be murdered by King Ahasuerus. Uh, name check. But Ahasuerus... And what happened with Esther? She said, I don't think I can do it because I haven't been called into the throne room. And if I go into the throne room, my husband could kill me. And, well, she ended up praying. She mustered up the courage and she walked into the throne room and the king raised up his scepter and she was able to approach the king. But even the wife of the king must submit to this rule. There is one person in the kingdom that does not submit to this rule. And that is the oldest son. See, the oldest son has no fear of ever dying in any throne room. That son can run in there unannounced in the most important business meeting that could be taking place in that whole kingdom. Son come running in there. For any peasant Instant death. For this son, it is instant forgiveness. Why can he not die? Because he is going to be the future king. And brothers and sisters, let's, this is the gospel. For before, if we were to run into the throne room of God, we would have died instantly. And now we can walk into that throne room before an eternal father any moment any time of day, without being called, without setting a meeting, he is there. Instant access. We have this freedom. We have an eternal, loving Father. In Christ, we have been reborn. We've been made new. Behold, you are a new creation. There is no longer a need to plead and bargain. We have Christ, the better bargain, the better sacrifice, the better deal, which costs God everything and us nothing. So let's go back. Let's go back to these examples I gave at the beginning, this time where we seek to make that bargain. And all my examples, and every example I could think of, who's in control of the bargain? We are. Who sets the term to the deal? We do. 
When we say yes to the deal, we automatically say God is saying yes to the deal when he hasn't agreed in any way. We are Lord of the deals, of the bargains, of the sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, give up. Surrender. Submit to Christ. Embrace Christ. He's a better Lord. Free yourself, free yourself of the shame, of the guilt, and of your sin. Forgive yourself because Christ has forgiven you. Let me quote Richard Sibbs as I begin to close. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. If you are here and you are plagued by your sin and you want to be free of your sin, if you want to be free of yourself, if you no longer want to be your own Lord, but you want a gracious Savior, then please find one of the pastors so we can begin to talk about this great and wonderful salvation. We can talk about the blood of the Lamb. And if you're here and you do believe, then my charge, my challenge to you is to tell yourself the gospel, to sit in awe of the gospel, and then embrace the comforting arms of an eternal father because of the blood that was shed for you, the better sacrifice, Jesus Christ, our the Lamb of God. Let me pray. Father, Lord, you have sent your Son of infinite worth. You have sent your Son, Lord, of, that is, he's full of grace, full of truth, full of mercy, kindness, the foundation of all of our joy, full perfection, full of glory, you sent him to die for us so that we, Lord, can be washed by your blood. Lord, this gospel story, our prayer this morning is that within every one of us, Lord, it becomes more real. It brings us to our knees, to more worship, to more thankfulness. It teaches us, Lord, how to become more in the image of your Son. Lord, forgive us where we continually fall short. Help us to embrace the blood of your Son and walk in the newness of life. We love you, Lord. Amen.